Welcome to Behind the Ops podcast. Today, we're lucky to have with us a longtime Tulip user, Eddie Carrillo from Bellwether. Eddie, welcome to the show. Hey, Gio. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to, to be here and talk about manufacturing and everything that goes on behind the scenes. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, we're really looking forward to having you on the show. And so, Eddie, just so our listeners can get to know you a little bit, can you give us some background on yourself, you know, where you're from, where you studied, and what you studied? Yeah, definitely. I grew up in Los Angeles, this area of Los Angeles called the San Fernando Valley. I've always been pretty hands-on with like working on cars and working with Legos and puzzles. And I've always kind of really enjoyed a lot of the act of putting things together. It was just always something that I, I enjoyed. And so I, I kind of pursued a lot of that, you know, with, with math and science and uh, studied mechanical engineering at MIT. That took me out to the East Coast. And so I was out there for a while. And while I was at MIT, I, I got the really great opportunity to do internships and co-ops at you know, some, of, some of the biggest manufacturing companies around. My first exposure to manufacturing, I got the chance to be a quality engineer at Toyota down in Kentucky. And you know, we spent the first like week or two of my time there learning about the Toyota way and the Toyota yeah. production system. You know, other people in their career try to take classes around this and everything. And I was really lucky that that was my first two weeks of my career, yeah. you know, where we just got to to go through all of these things as to what is the Toyota way, you know, all these words, you know, what is Kanban? What is, what is Kaizen? What is Pokeyoke? What is Andon? What is all of these terms that are commonplace in manufacturing? You know, it was just a two-week course on it. Yeah. And it really kind of set this incredible foundation for the way that I kind of thought about the world. I thought about manufacturing and I just thought about process in, in my life. I also got the chance to do uh, an internship up in Seattle working for Boeing, you know, working at the 737 facility. And it was, it was incredible to see, you know, effectively high-speed manufacturing of airplanes. Yeah. And at the time, I think Boeing was producing about 40 airplanes a month, which is just incredible on something that large. And then after that, I spent some time um, at Apple as an iPad manufacturing engineer. That really opened my eyes a lot to manufacturing and to what is possible. I mean, spending time overseas in, in China, you know, at different vendors and getting to really see the scale of manufacturing for a company like that. So a lot of that really kind of set this foundation from a very corporate perspective of what manufacturing can be when you have resources when you have money, when you have people, when you have just literally anything you need to solve a manufacturing problem. It really set a really interesting foundation. So I decided to really kind of challenge that, you know, to challenge that in myself, you know, what can I accomplish with limited resources, whether that's time, money, or, you know, people. And so I actually spent about a year out in East Africa in Tanzania working with a buddy of mine who was starting a company and we were trying to produce agricultural tooling. It was really interesting because he had he had this design for this crop thresher that we wanted to try and produce locally in Tanzania and then sell it to local farmers. And it was interesting because, you know, here I had just come from, you know, this very corporate environment thinking, all right, you know, we're going to produce this at local local shops, local vendors. And so I went together, I like made part drawings for things. I had like tolerance call outs on cylinders and I had like cylindricity constraints on a couple of <laughs> things. And I was really excited and went to this machine shop in one of the industrial areas in, in Arusha, Tanzania, where I was living. And, you know, it's a full, it's a full machine shop. And, you know, I, I hand them this drawing of this cylinder from a piece of sheet metal. They had to bend it to make like a, a half drum. Okay. They kind of just look at it and they say, okay, 
And they go and they grab this, they grab this sheet metal, they put it on a break. And so they give it one ninety degree bend and they give it the other 90 degree bend on the other side. Cause it was, it was a half circle with a flange. And then they clamp one flange on the table and just hold the other side and just bend it over. <laughs> and then they take a measurement across from, you know, from end to end on the flange until that they can effectively approximate the, like the diameter call out that I had on the drawing. And if it didn't fit, you know, they would kind of just like bend it more until it did. And then eventually they're like, all right, yeah, here you go. And I was just so stunned. Yeah. And I assume your concentricity call out probably wasn't being adhered to, was it? I was just stunned. Yeah. I was just like, well, you know, this might be a parabola. This might be a semicircle. Like I have no idea what this is, but okay. You know, so it kind of really reframed how I thought about manufacturing and just kind of production in general. And it really kind of set this stage for you know, manufacturing tooling and just the manufacturing process in general, it's supposed to be able to be a tool that is used based on the environment that you're in. You can't take this giant corporate approach and apply it to the, the small people. You know, that's, that's the goal. That's the aspiration. That's, that's the direction you're going. But you can't try to get there on your first shot. Yeah. That's the whole premise of manufacturing is iterative design. You know, it's this whole, you know, continuous improvement. It's, you know, start somewhere and make it better. Yeah. That really framed that for me a lot where I was just like, okay, I have to understand what is feasible here. There's a saying that I, you know, that's pretty commonplace, but I've really tried to live it a lot is, you know, this whole idea of it's not just good, it's good enough. And you have to really know what you're trying to achieve and how do you achieve it given your constraints. And so, you know, ultimately it was like, okay, you know, once I was able to understand the tooling that I was working with, a lot of the processes, a lot of the machining operations, I was like, okay, let me take a different approach to this. Let's understand what are we trying to measure? You know, what are, what are the functional ideas of measurement of our product? So then after that, I was able to kind of pivot and really work with what I had available there, you know, both resources and people wise. And we ended up being able to begin to actually increase production of, of this product locally. And it was it was just a really incredible experience kind of, you know, being able to say, all right, you know, this is a new challenge where I've never experienced something like this. I have these fundamentals. Let's apply them in a way that works here. Yeah. And then that really kind of set the stage for manufacturing for me going forward again, where after that, I started working at a startup in Boston called uh, Piaggio Fast Forward. And when I started there, you know, we were, we were under 10 people. We were making a prototype of a consumer robotic product. And I joined with the premise of I was going to eventually help lead a lot of the manufacturing efforts. But at the time, we were nowhere near there. You know, we were we were doing custom carbon fiber layouts, you know, at two in the morning and then, you know, waiting for them to dry at you know, <laughs> four in the morning. And then we were beginning to bond them. And it was just it was not a manufacturing process at all. Yeah. Again, that was understood where it was a journey. Yeah. And so, you know, after being there for some time, I think it was finally towards 2018 when our product was mature. And that was when I heard about Tulip being in Somerville at the time. You know, I, I had friends who had been involved with Tulip. You know, I had heard of Tulip. I had seen it around a bit. I was just like, you know, let's see what this is. And, you know, kind of learned about the platform and realized that it, it was something that really kind of spoke to the way I believe in manufacturing, where it's this idea of you have to be able to build the solution that's going to meet your team. Yeah, that's a really good idea. And going back to your earlier point about manufacturing being all about continuous improvement. Yeah, definitely. Right. I mean, especially in the startup world, right? I mean, I'm sure you're all too familiar with it as well, but it's by the time you find the perfect solution, you're too late. Yeah. You know, if you wait to find the perfect solution, 
you've already lost. You know, someone's beat you to it. You know, you've run out of time. You've run out of money. Whatever it is, you have to understand what is the problem you're trying to solve. And it, again, it's the mindset of, of manufacturing, right? What is the root cause here? You know, what is your short-term countermeasure that you can just stop this problem immediately? And then understand that it might not be sustainable. So let's, while we have this short-term countermeasure, let's figure out our long-term countermeasure. Yeah. And I mean, to your point of having to design within your given constraints is especially interesting because, you know, the point at which you reach that threshold is so vastly different from some of the corporations where you've worked at in the past versus manufacturing in Tanzania versus, say, working at a startup. So depending on the context and constraints, you need to be able to design a solution for the given environment. Yeah, definitely. So that, that was kind of the thing that I was able to really get to experience at, at Piaggio Fast Forward, where we acquired some space for starting up a production environment. And I got to kind of lead the design of that factory. You know, I had people at the company who were very supportive and I had some incredible mentors there, but I was tasked with designing the process flow, you know, picking out our tooling, picking out our benches. How is the material going to move around here? You know, what are the work instructions going to look like? How are we going to do any of our data collection? You know, where is all this data going to live? How are we going to make sure that the final product has good parts, has all been tested? Where do we record all this information? Luckily enough, I happened to stumble upon Tulip, you know, and it solved all of my problems and, you know, life was great, but it was, it was a long journey there. Right. I mean, I remember in a lot of our initial meetings where you and I first started talking through it, it was, there was a lot of ideas that I had, you know, that we kind of like brainstormed about how to solve a lot of these problems. And there I was getting too excited and trying to put down these big corporate solutions. And it was just like, no, let's understand what are the needs of the team? What are the needs of the company and solve those? Yeah, It was this very iterative design, you know, starting with like the work instructions first and then getting our data collection behind that and really kind of designing a lot of that within a year or so. I mean, the system was just dialed in at that point, you know, and it was all right. Now it's on to new projects using Tulip to solve different problems here. Yeah, that's really interesting because, you know, for a manufacturing engineer, it's really great opportunity to have a green field in which you can define all the processes, material flows, tooling, as you were saying. But it can also be quite daunting because of the sheer number of things that need to be done. So it's very useful to be able to break down the problem a little bit. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And so, you know, I joined my current company, Bellwether Coffee, at the start of the year. And when I joined, we were still trying to figure out where we were going to be doing manufacturing, you know, for upcoming products. And there was this idea thrown out of, you know, what if we try to own our own manufacturing? And it was an aggressive timeline. This was in January. And we said, all right, well, you know, if we're trying to launch a product pretty soon, we have to move on this. And so it involved a lot of people with a lot of experience really have kind of stepped up and built up every system of the operation side of the business. You know, again, I was given this this green field of we need to build a factory and we need to build all the processes behind it. You have a couple months to do it right the first time. And, you know, if I had been given that challenge, Two years ago, it would have been just an impossible task. Yeah. Luckily, I was getting to build off of something that I had done before. It was this interesting challenge where, you know, I recently heard this saying that saying, you know, if you have to do something that's really hard, you should do it the easiest way. <laughs> you know, it sounds kind of silly, but that really kind of stuck with me, right? Where it's yeah. like, right, yeah, you know, we're, we're trying to do is hard. Let's stick to what works. Yeah. You know, and that's, that was kind of the, the exciting thing where it's like, okay, I know what is needed at this point now to do this the first time through. Let's just get going on Tulip. But that's kind of the interesting thing, right? You know, here I am trying to onboard other team members to using Tulip. And it's Tulip is just this powerful tool because it just lets you just run with your imagination. Yeah. You can solve any problem you want. You just have to kind of structure it down a little bit. And so, you know, here I am trying to explain this to coworkers. 
you know, I'm like, here, you know, this is how you create apps. You know, this is how you do this, this is how you do that. Here's the, the complete button here, all the triggers that it does and everything. And they're just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm sorry. I'm like, let's take it a step back. Let's, you know, break it down into block diagrams. You know, let's understand what are we trying to do? You know, how do we make that easier for the operators? That's kind of really what, what excites me about Tulip. You know, as much as I'm not a fan of the buzzwords, there's this notion of, of Industry 4.0. It's this concept of making everything intelligent, you know, this concept of IoT devices, of, you know, kind of really maximizing data collection, introducing all sorts of concepts from current day computer science into manufacturing. And I think that's a really powerful idea, except that I think there's two approaches to it. Well, there's probably more. But there's two that I've seen, right? There's the idea of taking it from purely optimizing operations as a numbers point. But the thing that Tulip really allows you to do in this space of, of Industry 4.0 is really optimizing for your workforce. You know, really lets your engineers take the ownership of, I'm going to do my job so that the assembly side of the team doesn't have to struggle. You know, yeah. I'm going to make it so that they're really appreciated because at the end of the day, the people that are assembling your product are your revenue generation. You know, if they don't build product, you can't sell product. You yeah. know, it doesn't matter how well of a product you engineer. If your team can't build it, that's kind of the end of the line. And Tulip really allows you to really celebrate the operators, to make updates instantaneously, to kind of observe and, you know, talk to your assembly team and say, you know, what are you struggling with? Where are you noticing that you're touching the screen too much? You know, where are you typing? Where are you moving around too much? You know, when are you looking for things? When do you ever have to think about your work while you're doing your work kind of idea? And Tulip and, you know, Industry 4.0 really allows the manufacturing engineers to, to kind of take that responsibility of, I want my team to be happy. I want my team to not have to struggle with work. You know, I want to decrease training time let me use all these tools that are available to just make a really simple interface that has a lot of power behind it. Yeah, I mean, I think you touched on some really interesting points there. And especially the fact of giving the workforce tools that are otherwise reserved for software engineers is a really powerful shift. And I always find it interesting how once people understand the power of this tool, it can also be overwhelming just because of the number of things that can be done. But I think it's really important to be able to think critically about which use cases to build solutions for and which to prioritize. And I personally think it's oftentimes the ones that have the highest impact, whether that's in terms of scrap, time, material, that's associated with the highest value. Yeah, definitely. And that's been one of the challenges where for me at times where, you know, I get, sometimes I get excited about problems I could solve that I'm just like, oh, I got this great idea. But now I've learned at this point to keep my great ideas to myself sometimes. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, let me focus on the work that needs to be done right now. Because if suddenly I start talking about, you know, this, the one that really excites me that is my next project, I really want to do a picking system that takes into account, you know, how much work is left at a station, how many assemblies you have left to build at a station, and then, you know, understand based on, you know, your average cycle time at that station, you can multiply that to backfeed to your, your kitting station, a priority list of if you have, you know, five stations you're trying to replenish, one of them only has one assembly's worth of material left. Another one has five assemblies worth of material left. But for whatever reason, the station with one assembly has an average cycle time of, let's say, an hour. And the one with five left has an average cycle time of 10 minutes. Normally, you would say, oh, that one only has one left. Let me go and replen that one. But using Tulip and using this kind of dynamic environment where all of this can be updated all the time, the one that has five left at 10 minutes per, you know that one's going to run out first. 
And so you, again, what Tulip really does is it lets you take that risk away from your team. You know, they don't have to think about which one should I solve first? You know, which one's more important? You know, what should I do here? It really says we have this problem. We solved it once. We shouldn't have to keep solving it every single time. Yeah. And so it really allows, you know, that information to be done by effectively the, the engineers by doing this, this logic and tulip. And then the person on the floor just says, oh, okay, cool. You know, my next work order that I'm kidding for is this one. Let me go deliver it. And then it's taken care of. Yeah. That seems a solution like you shouldn't keep to yourself. Seems like a good one to implement. No, it, it's one that really, really excites me. And I mean, again, you know, it's a pretty standard optimization Kanban system, but the fact that you can do it in Tulip, you know, using very few functions is just really the powerful thing, right? We don't have to go and buy this high-end software that's a module for our ERP system. I just get to write a couple Tulip apps with some small logic that takes a look at some variables and that's it. Yeah, that's really interesting. And when you were talking about the principles about manufacturing engineering, the concept of Gemba comes to mind. Because, you know, a lot of these solutions can only really be identified when you're there, boots on the ground, talking to the people who are doing these jobs day in and day out. And they're able to service these things. But you really need to be able to embody the mentality of being a problem solver and being curious to go and find the problems to solve. Yeah, definitely. And that's one of the things that that is a challenge, right? Because you have to work with your end user, you know, with the assembly team. And on the one hand, you have to ask them, what are you struggling with to identify some of the problems? But again, that only gives you the problems that they themselves are able to identify. There's a really powerful side of just being on your manufacturing floor and observing. Yeah. But even then, there's still a bit of deviation, if you will, added in there by being an observer. When I was at Toyota, Every once in a while, I had to go out and like understand some of the processes on the floor. And so, you know, as I would go out on the floor with my high-vis vest and my hard hat and my safety glasses yeah. and my clipboard, and suddenly, you know, everyone would stand a little straighter, you yeah. know, everyone was a lot more precise and particular. And and I wasn't there to, to judge them or to take any notes on, on their performance or anything like that. I, I really wanted to know the process. And so I was able to kind of talk to the team members there and say, hey, you know, this is what I'm looking for. I want you to do your job normally. And I want to know what's hard for you because I want to really remove those barriers. Yeah. And that's definitely one of the challenges as a manufacturing engineer is that you sit halfway between design and the manufacturing operation. And you have to advocate for both. You tend to be the voice for the assembly team and just to kind of convey back to engineering and say, hey, you know, we need to make this change. Because, you know, the, the team on the floor is struggling to build this, you know, it's cumbersome. And so it takes a while, but really building that, that relationship with the assembly team is just one of the most powerful things, you know, where, where you really want to establish that culture of openness of saying, hey, I want you to tell me when something is hard. I want you to tell me when something's uncomfortable, you know, when something is annoying, you know, just literally just down to that base level of if this is annoying to you, tell me. Yeah. And it, it takes a while to, you know, I mean, depending on the place, it could be a scary thing, right? Because nobody wants to really openly admit and tell a superior, say, I don't like doing my job. That's a scary thing to say. And I think to make a really good manufacturing process, you have to kind of get to that point where you can have that honest conversation with your team members and have them tell you that they don't like doing their job a certain way. Yeah. Because then that gives you a foundation for the problem you're trying to solve. If they say, hey, you know, I'm, I don't like having to walk to the other side of the bench 
to look at a bunch of bins to find the part that I'm looking for. You're just like, okay, great. I'll introduce a pictolite system. Yeah. You know, if they say, oh, I don't like that. I have to set the torque wrench every single time. Great. I'll introduce a digital torque gun for that. You know, I say, I don't like that. I have to touch the screen. Great. You know, I'll introduce a foot pedal or any triggers or, you know, they don't want to type on the keyboard. We'll introduce barcodes. You can solve any problem. You just really have to understand what is your team struggling with and how do you make their work better? Yeah, that's a really great point. And especially in the manufacturing context where there can often be repetitive tasks. You know, sometimes I think there's definitely the fear of sharing with a superior the part of the job that one doesn't enjoy. But I think also part of it has to do with the fact that when you're doing things over and over again, you accept it as the way of doing things. If one is able to remove themselves and really think analytically about the tasks that are being done and opportunities for improvement, this mentality can really enable a lot of these improvements. Definitely. That's kind of really the important thing where it's an interesting balance on both sides, right? You need to have, especially when you're starting up a factory, you know, here I am getting to do that for the second time. And it's this challenge of, I know where I want to take it to. I know we're not there yet. And so it's kind of this conversation with the assembly team being like, look, I understand that you might know a faster way right now. Let's go with it this way and we'll make those improvements. But that's kind of the thing that I, I really like about Tulip a lot is that it democratizes the manufacturing process. You know, it allows anyone to have input into how to make it better. It's one of those things where I think as a manufacturing engineer, you have to find that balance of letting your team work the way that they feel the most comfortable or the way that works for them. But at the same time, making sure that you're collecting all of the data that, you, that you're looking for. One example I faced pretty early on, I had some, some more constructions for building an assembly and originally, you know, I went through and I had, I think it was like, you know, six, seven steps that you had to, you know, build part of it, click through, build part of it, click through, and, you know, kind of going that way. What I found very quickly was that after you built this assembly, you know, four or five times, the assembly team wasn't looking at the work instructions anymore. They knew how to build it. They were just, you know, building it and then clicking through every single step as quickly as possible and then hitting complete. And at the bigger picture, it still gave me the cycle time data I cared about. But suddenly I didn't have any like step-by-step -step data. And I was just like, oh, okay, you know, this is the way that they're going to build it. And obviously, you know, I could come in, you know, very sternly and say, that's not acceptable. You need to click through each step and do it this way. And it's kind of a balance, right? I mean, I could introduce that friction and kind of force them to do it this way. Or, you know, I can kind of find a way to work with the team, you know, try to meet them halfway here. And so in that specific instance, because what I cared about was the cycle time, I found ways to introduce triggers for advancing the steps so that they didn't have to interact with the screen and it kind of just moved through as they went. But one of the other things that I found very powerful was because we were testing our assemblies after we were building them, we had the ability to verify if they were good or not. I was able to create a, you know, not to get too technical on, on the, the tulip terms here, but I created a custom field under the users that kept track of how many completions they had done of a specific assembly. Oh, yeah. And once that they had gone through the step-by-step -step process 10 times before they were able to hit complete, they had to have a supervisor sign off. So the supervisor would come over and look at their work and say, you built it right. Once that this happened 10 times and we were able to track those completions per assembly per user, they were then able to just start the work instructions, do their work, and the complete button would be available on that first page. Because at that point, they knew how to build it. And I didn't want to impede them from being able to do their job. But, you know, to make sure that things weren't slipping through the cracks or, you know, they were 
start to take shortcuts, I had it set so that every two weeks that counter would go back down to zero and they had to then go back through and build 10 of them following the step-by-step instructions and get it signed off again. Just kind of building in this ability to have like a skills matrix and having them retrain. When I was able to explain to the team why I was doing this and what I was doing, they were completely on board. They understood, you know, they knew that the data was important. And so they said, yeah, of course, we'll do this anytime, gladly. Yeah, it's one thing to design solutions in isolation, but of course, that's never the case. You're dealing with real life situations in which, as you were describing, people don't need step-by-step guidance. So it's important to design for those cases, simpler solutions, specifically catered for that given environment. Yeah, definitely. But to that point, right, it's a very difficult thing to say this or that on. And so, you know, you have to really meet your team halfway on it and really understand their needs. Because if you let the assemblers really dictate everything, you know, you might end up with things that you don't really enjoy. I think first and foremost, you know, you have to really understand what are you trying to gather out of the work instructions out of the process? You know, are you trying to capture cycle times? Are you trying to make sure that specific things are checked or torqued or you know, that there's this visual inspection that happens in the process, really kind of understand what you're trying to accomplish with the work instructions. Yeah. And the work instructions are really just a tool to capture all this and to really kind of make it look pretty. Yeah, for sure. And it's also a balancing act, as you alluded to, that comes into play. Yeah. So, Eddie, do you mind sharing for listeners who aren't aware what Bellwether manufactures and what your plans are to scale up operations? Yeah, definitely. So, Bellwether Coffee is a startup out in the Bay Area. And so we make coffee roasters for cafes, but it's not just a coffee roaster. You know, we make this closed loop, zero emission, the first of its kind electric coffee roaster that has really kind of changed the way that cafes can structure their business model. Where in the past, I mean, you had three options before, right? You roasted your coffee offsite, you bought roasted coffee from someone, or, you know, you had your own coffee roaster on site, but... Most coffee roasters run off natural gas, so you have to run all sorts of ventilation to get a lot of those fumes out. You know, typically you're only roasting at night because of the heat generated by it or because of the smells or, you know, for whatever reason. And even then you have to have access to being able to vent it. And you also need a permit from the city for it, you know, for installing a gas line, for all the emissions that you're generating. And it becomes a pretty burdensome process. And so that's why in the past you've only seen cafes roasting on site if they're really into having that much control over their their coffee on site. I mean, it's led to an incredible revolution in the coffee industry, but it's hard for someone to get into it. It's a very laborious process. It's a very artisanal process, you know? And so there's quite a bit of a barrier to entry there. So with Bellwether, we've created this roaster that it takes the same approach to coffee roasting that I do to manufacturing, where it's, I want the user to not have to really think about what's going on here. I want things to just work. I want the hard stuff to be done behind the scenes. And so the Bellwether Roaster does just that. It creates this very simple interface that allows the users to select the coffee that they're roasting, select the profile that they're going for, and it just roasts. It allows it to be inside, to be used during normal hours. You know, you don't need this really high training for it. You know, you don't need a ton of documentation. It's a very people-first design language. And one of the things that we're that we're doing to augment a lot of that as well is... Bellwether is also in the business of sourcing green coffee from around the world. And we have an incredible coffee quality team that, again, does all of that work. We work with the local farmers, you know, we negotiate fair prices. And, you know, on top of that, one of the things that we recently had a really big push on is this concept of a verifiable living income, 
where we're not trying to pay people the lowest amount possible for their coffee because people are people. Everyone's life is, is just as important. And so, you know, the same way that in manufacturing, here I am trying to really highlight the operator at the roaster side, we're really trying to highlight the cafe workers. You know, our green coffee side is really, again, trying to then highlight the producers to really make sure that everyone's being treated fairly. So we're doing that work of, you know, sourcing ethical, sustainable coffee. We have a team that then goes through all sorts of different uh, quality parameters on it. And we offer that to people who own the Bellwether Roaster. You know, they have the ability to buy this coffee that we've gone through this whole process of presenting a curated list, you know, and easy to select. You just pick one and it just works idea. Yeah, that's really interesting. Actually, back in Milan, where I'm from, there's a coffee shop called La Torrefazione, which has a roastery in-house, and it really changes the whole experience of having a coffee. It definitely does, yeah. And it's, you know, living now in Portland, it's something that is slowly becoming more commonplace here, you know, where it's roasting coffee on site. It's this concept that's just kind of taking over everything, right? Well, let's vertically integrate our supply chains as much as possible. You know, let's, let's really kind of put people at the forefront of all these processes. You know, let's not have our coffee roasted in some industrial zoned area of the city and it gets trucked away. You know, let's let's really have that here. You know, let's celebrate people and the process and everything that goes with it. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I'm looking forward to having the coffee one time. Yeah, whenever you're around. Yeah, yeah. So going back to your experiences that have formed you and how you think about the changes you've seen, when you think about the future of manufacturing, what excites you the most? about what's to come in terms of new technologies that we'll be seeing? You know, one of the things that really excites me in manufacturing that I kind of tried to allude to a little bit is this whole idea of trying to just put people first. One of the main hits into the manufacturing world from COVID was supply chains were shown how fragile they can be. You know, you're having factories overseas shut down, you know, you're having this incredible cost on shipping, whether, you know, you're air freighting or you're shipping things by sea, there's just not even enough carriers half the time. And so it's made a lot of companies rethink their supply chains. And so supply chains are beginning to kind of come in more domestically. And suddenly, you know, you're just a lot closer to things now. And so I think that's kind of one of the things that's kind of beginning to become out more is just highlighting the people that are in that process, trying to really understand that manufacturing is not this thing that happens in a room with no windows on the other side of the world. <laughs> manufacturing can happen anywhere. That's one of the things that I think, you know, especially with a platform like Tulip, it really allows you to deploy manufacturing process with very little overhead. It allows you to get going in as fast as you can make it, you know? Yeah. And so that's kind of one of the things that I'm hopeful that manufacturing goes in the next you know, couple of years is really highlighting the people that are involved in it, trying to really bring manufacturing to the forefront. One of the things that I enjoy as a manufacturing engineer is that when you do your job right, no one knows what you do. Yeah. Granted, I've never, never haven't had this experience yet, right? But people are just like, what are you even doing? You know, the manufacturing floor is, is operating perfectly. You know, what is your job? And you're just like, well, yeah, that is the job, right? There's... <laughs> There's so many fires day in, day out that it's never a boring day. Yeah, that's a really good point. When you think about all the systems that need to work in harmony for products to leave the warehouse, it's pretty surprising. 
And actually, I still remember speaking to some folks who had worked at Tesla in the early days and kind of describing, you know, sure, it's challenging to design the first concepts, but then actually manufacturing the car at scale really started to show problems and challenges that they weren't really prepared for. Yeah, definitely. And it's that scale that's right in the middle, you know, where products one through 10 of something is not that hard, right? I mean, don't get me wrong. It has a lot of challenges, but it's not that hard. You know, making a million of something, it's not that hard. Making a thousand to 10,000 of something, that's where it's hard. You know, you're kind of in this transition phase, you know, in this like teenage phase of scaling a product where, you know, you're getting to see all of these challenges that early on where you were making, you know, 10 of something, you were able to have people to to rework parts, to fabricate one-offs, to do a lot of that. And, you know, that works for that. You know, when you get to a million, you've automated so many of your processes that everything kind of just works. But it's that in-between phase where I think it gets really hard, you know, where you're trying to scale a design, you know, you're trying to scale your processes. Suddenly this idea that you had for how you were going to build a lot of them goes out the window because it turns out it's not a repeatable process. And, you know, the fabricator that was making it for you was taking the time to handcraft each one. Or, you know, their yield is bad at higher scale, but you don't have enough data at quantity 10. It gets really interesting. And I think that's a really fun part of manufacturing to be in. Yeah, for sure. And going back to your earlier point, I mean, as manufacturing comes back on shore, it's going to make it at least that much easier to solve problems. I mean, right now, I don't know what the latest number is, but when you count the number of ships waiting outside of the port of LA, it's astounding. Oh, yeah. When you're dealing with these feedback loops, extending times that much just makes things that much more complicating. Yeah, definitely. Well, Eddie, it was a real pleasure having you here. We appreciate the insight you shared and how your experiences have formed your thoughts in the manufacturing world. Thanks so much for coming. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. I mean, I, I always enjoy the chance to talk about manufacturing. I think that that's kind of the most important thing, you know, as we kind of continue to keep growing, right, is as a manufacturing engineer, being the advocate for your assembly team, the advocate for the process. And a platform like Twilio, it really just decreases the barrier to make any changes to really update things all the time. And so as with everything, it's just continuous improvement. And so yeah. it's exciting to see where other companies are are taking the software and, you know, where I'm getting the chance to really take the software. And even, you know, with Tulip, I mean, when I started working with the software a few years ago, I mean, just looking at where it started to where it is now and every single, like all the release notes, you know, month over month, it was incredible to be on the live chat and just say, hey, you know, what if we make this small change? And the next patch, Tulip was like, oh yeah, you know, we made this change. And it kind of made me feel like I was the operator in that manufacturing environment, you know, where I was working based on what was available to me. I advocated for things that I wish were better. And then Tulip on their end made those changes. And suddenly my job got easier. And then I was able to flow that down to the assembly team. Yeah, that's right. Continuous improvement. Continuous improvement all the way down, you know? Yeah. Well, the software doesn't use itself. It's always (laughs) great when users like yourself are building awesome stuff with it. Eddie, thanks again for joining and have a great day. Thank you so much, Joe. Behind the Ops is brought to you by Tulip. Connect the people, machines, devices, and systems used in your production and logistics processes with our revolutionary no-code frontline operations platform. Visit tulip.co to learn more. This show is produced by myself, Giovanni Carrara, and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even review in iTunes as it really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at giovanni at tulip.co. Thank you for listening to Behind the Ops. We'll see you next time.